Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome, welcome, welcome. That was Tommy Morello getting us started with his recording of Let Freedom Ring. Tom is not only a great artist, but a great freedom fighter in his own right. He shows up whenever people are in motion and in struggle. Reach out to Tom Morello. He reaches back to you. So I thank him for his art, for his music, and for his consistent support of the cause of human freedom. Uh, I want to remind us that Under the Tree is an image borrowed from the great black freedom movement of the 1960s and 70s. Um, that was when there was a lull in the, in the civil rights movement. There was a, a time of uncertainty and, and kind of lack of action. And a young volunteer from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee suggested that they create a series of freedom schools throughout the South and the idea was, the interesting thing is he wrote a proposal, but it wasn't a proposal to a foundation or to the government. It was a proposal to his friends. And what he proposed in a, simply a page and a half was that they needed to gather strength. They needed to find a space where they could organize an insurgency against white supremacy, against Jim Crow. And the idea was to create fugitive spaces wherever you could. It could be in a city park, it could be in a field under a tree. It could be in a house of worship or a labor union hall. Um, but the idea was, let's get together, name the circumstances of our lives, and ask ourselves fundamental questions. How could our lives be otherwise? What can we imagine? And you know, the, the thing that the young volunteer who started the effort, um, what he said was, the black people of Mississippi have been denied many things, decent facilities, forward-looking curriculum, fully trained teachers, but the fundamental injury is the right to think for ourselves about the circumstances of our lives and how they might be otherwise. In other words, he was raising a revolutionary question. How did we get here? Where do we want to go? And if you imagine that wasn't revolutionary in 1963-64, remember the martyrs of Mississippi, Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney, were all Freedom School teachers, and they were returning from the investigation of an arson bombing of a, of a freedom school when they were arrested by the county sheriff, taken to jail, released in the middle of the night, and then lynched. So that's how revolutionary it was. But if you think about that question, what are the circumstances of our lives and how could they be otherwise? This is a good question for us right now. It's a good question for youth all over the country. It's a good question for kids on the west side, the south side, the south Bronx, Watts, um, or anywhere in the country. What are the circumstances of our lives? How could they be otherwise? You know, we open each seminar, each edition of this podcast with a poem, and this is becoming our common practice and our ritual announcement. The seminar is now in session. Today's poem is The Cure at Troy by Seamus Haney. Human beings suffer. They torture one another. They get hurt and they get hard. No poem or play or song can fully right a wrong inflicted and endured. 
The innocent in gales beat on their bars together. A hunger striker's father stands in the graveyard, dumb. The police widow in veils faints at the funeral home. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up, and hope and history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracle and cures and healing wells. Call miracle self-healing, the utter self-revealing, double take of feeling. If there's fire on the mountain or lightning and storm, and a God speaks from the sky, that means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of new life at its term. That's The Cure at Troy by Seamus Haney. Let's continue with our other traditional uh, feature of the podcast, and that's a free write. So pause the podcast for just a few minutes and write without taking your fingers from the keyboard. No edits, no revisions. And today's prompt is, what do you hope for on this side of the grave? Okay, start writing, and I'll be right here when you get back. If you want to share your response to the writing prompt, email the voice memo to underthetree at gmail.com. We might play it in a future episode, so make sure you introduce yourself and tell us where you're from. You can also follow us at Under the Tree Podcast on Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel for clips and interviews. Okay, back to the show. Let's move on to our segment, Reports from the Front Row, pages from a middle schooler's notebook, where we look at schools and classrooms and education from the perspective of our dynamic reporter, Light Eilee. She's a writer, an artist, a critical observer. I think of her as a mini ethnographer. She's 12 years old and a rising seventh grader. Thanks for joining us under the tree, Lighty. Thank you for having me. It's always good to be here. It's always good to have you back. You know, you're getting rave reviews. You know that, right? Yeah, you usually send me them. Yeah, so people apparently like this uh, this segment of the of the podcast, and I love it. So this time we're going to move you up in the podcast, and I'm going to ask you to respond to the free write. So I had I had prompted people um, with the question of what do you hope for, and and so I'm asking you as a 12 year old, what do you hope for uh, in in the world, in school, uh, in your own life. And maybe you did the free write. Maybe you could read what you wrote. Well, obviously, so the world that you adults have left my generation has some very serious issues. One of my biggest hopes for us is that my generation, Gen Z, can help to repair some of the damage that has happened in the world over the past couple of years, mostly in this year. I want to I wanna repair the political situation, have, um, achieve racial justice, and on a more person, for a more personal answer, I'd love to go back to school, see my friends and my boyfriend, and get to go to the mall with my sister. Right. Um, so those are some big hopes. I mean, when you think about repairing the political system, what what comes to your mind, or or even uh, even bigger than that, repairing the the long, long legacy of racial injustice? What are, what are some of the things that come to your mind? When I was little, yeah. When I was little and Barack Obama was the president, I didn't really have to think about it. I didn't have to think about what was happening because I trusted that someone competent was taking care of it for me. Mm. I want that feeling again. It's been taken away from me. I see that, but you know, one of the things I think I'm going to 
argue with you over time is that nobody takes care of our problems for us. We have to collectively take care of them for ourselves. And that means, yeah, it means electing the right people, but it also means being engaged always, not just voting once and then saying you take care of it, but actually full engagement. What do you think of that? Of course, but I was, I was little and now I know everything about what's happening and I'd prefer to trust the person that's in charge. I understand. I didn't mean that I didn't have to worry about anything or like even be aware of what's going on in the, in the government, but I, I trusted who was in charge and that was a good feeling that I wasn't aware of. So I wish I could have that back. I get it. Um, I thought I'd ask you today um, to share with us some of your um, movie recommendations and some of your book recommendations. You've been on lockdown for quite a while. I know you're an avid reader. I know you're an avid movie watcher. And I was particularly thinking about movies that have to do with adolescence and whether there are any movies that, that you think are, you want to recommend to some of the, some of the folks listening to this. I definitely recommend the movie Eighth Grade. Oh, what That's a very tell us good about pick. it. Tell us about it. Um, I don't remember everything, but it's about it's about a girl in eighth grade and basically what happens to her. She has a lot of experiences, and it's very interesting to watch. Did you think it was true to life? I've never been to eighth grade, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> good point, but, but you're, it, you're it definitely awfully close. didn't exactly make me excited for eighth grade. I'll tell you that. Well, because uh, she goes through a lot. I actually loved that movie. Um, yeah, anything yeah. else jumps to your mind right away? Um, this isn't really about adolescence, but I guess the boy's a teenager. My favorite book of all time is called Dear Martin mm. by author Nick Stone. Tell us. It's an amazing book. Um, it's about a boy named Justice who starts a project where he writes letters in his notebook to Martin Luther King Jr., and um, it's about it's about racial equality and, and the injustice that this 18 year old boy faces. Mm -hmm. It's you know it's really amazing. I read it in fifth grade. It's still my favorite book. Well, what what about it? I mean, where does it go? What about it appeals to you? Does he have some action he takes, or does he does he make the world a better place, or does he what what happens in the book? His best friend is shot by a white man and he testifies in court. Um, mm. And there's also the drama of him because his, his crush is white and his mm. mom doesn't approve. Mm. You know, it's, it's amazing. And I definitely recommend that book. Well, listen, we're going to leave it there and come back um, next time. But I really appreciate your time and thank you for doing the free write. Of course. Okay. See you later. Bye, lady. Bye. You know, Malik, we get reactions to both the free rights and the homework at underthetreatpod at gmail.com. And here's one from Imagine the Angels of Bread, the homework assignment based on the poem by Martina Spada. This was written by Jay from Baltimore. This is the year the children in the classrooms jump up without permission and run outside to play. This is the year the child laughing in the class infects the whole world with laughter and no quarantine can halt the pandemic. This is the year the bell schedules melt into chocolate and coat the fingers of the children who taste joy while they read their brown fingerprinted books. 
If the pronouncement that education is a right for all children began with a vision of joy in the eyes of a child reading, then this is the year. If the recognition that freedom depends on understanding, beginning with a vision of poetry on the lips of a peasant, then this is the year. If a father pointing to a leaf or a mother laughing at her baby's babble began with a vision of themselves in each other's eyes, then this is the year. Beautiful, you know, it, what, what I love about it is that um, it really does allow you to unlock your imagination and think of the world we'd like to live in. So I really appreciate people sending in their kind of responses to both the free rights and the homework. Let's keep that going. Yeah. Welcome back. In these wild, demanding, often frightful, and yet strangely hopeful times we're enduring, a sense of suspended animation dominates, and we question where we've been and where we're headed. The here and now lacks substance and evaporates in front of our eyes. The past is hazy, the future indistinct, and fundamental questions are revisited with a sense of renewed and gathering urgency. In 1897, after months of illness and suicidal despair, the tormented French painter Paul Gauguin produced a sprawling panorama on a huge piece of jute sacking, an image of unfathomable figures amid scenery that might have been the twisted groves of a tropical island or a marvelously wild garden of Eden. Worshippers and gods, cats, birds, a quiet goat, a great idol with a peaceful expression and uplifted hands, a central figure plucking fruit, a depiction of Eve, not as a voluptuous innocent like some other women in Gauguin's gallery, but as a shrunken hag with a severe eye. Gauguin scrawled the title of his work in bold on top of the image. Translated into English, it reads, Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? These questions, horrifying for Gauguin, are potentially useful for us. So let's dive back into the question of freedom, part language arts, part history, part current events, this time noting that the gun-wielding white men parading at state houses in Michigan and Arizona are self-described freedom lovers and red-blooded American patriots. Let's take a closer look. In, in 1942, students at the University of Munich formed the White Rose, an underground resistance to Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich. When they were uncovered and captured, they claimed to be German patriots, even as they were denounced by the regime as degenerate rogues and sentenced to prison or death. At the Nuremberg trials following World War II, several Nazis pointed out accurately, but to no avail, that they obeyed not only orders, but also the law, and were therefore simply doing their patriotic duty as Germans. A group of anti-communist Cubans, all self-styled patriots, backed by the US CIA, launched an invasion in 1962 of the island nation from Florida in an attempt to overthrow the revolutionary government. They were defeated at the Bay of Pigs by another group of Cubans, mobilized under the banner Patria o Muerte, who thought of themselves as patriots. A self-described patriot in Shanghai told me years ago that the student riots in 1989 were the work of foreign agents and local traders. More recently, I met a Chinese graduate student at Harvard 
who said that the students who led the Tiananmen Square uprising were true Chinese patriots. And finally, I had a lengthy back and forth at the University of Southern Georgia some years ago with a man wearing a jacket emblazoned with a Confederate battle flag and a Tea Party Patriot patch. I pointed out the Confederacy was organized by traitors, not patriots, willing to blow up the nation in defense of a single freedom, namely the right to own other human beings. He disagreed. However you start and wherever you look, patriotism is inevitably elusive and always entangled in context historical flow, cultural surround, political perspective or preference. It's a wobbly concept at best, debatable and necessarily occupying a contested space. The young students at Parkland, Parkland, Florida stare over a barricade at the irascible NRA leadership, each claiming the shiny mantle of patriotism. National Football League team owners locked out Colin Kaepernick in the name of patriotism and decreed that players must stand respectfully during the playing of the national anthem, mistaking an enforced display of patriotism for the thing itself, rather than what it actually is, a long-standing hallmark of authoritarianism and autocracy. The instinct and desire to belong to something larger than oneself, a people say, or a singular nation, is common. The longing for membership in a distinctive group with clear boundaries and stable experiences and expectations is clear. I don't underestimate the sense of pleasure and solace that accompanies an embrace of patriotism, and I find the enthusiasm for a tribal identity, while troubling, understandable. But the pitfalls of patriotism are everywhere, and at some point those hazard must be honestly faced. To begin, patriotism is not, and can never aspire to be, a universal moral code like love thy neighbor as thyself say, or do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Patriotism is always embedded in the local and can never express a general principle or a common human aspiration. After all, if everyone on earth claimed tomorrow to be a patriot of their current country, 20% of the world's people would be Chinese patriots and 4.4% would be patriotic Americans. When Mayor Rudy Giuliani was asked if waterboarding human beings constitutes torture, he offered the classic patriotic nationalist response. It depends on who does it, he said. In his own mind, he was surely acting as a textbook patriot, supporting the country and offering a rigorous defense against enemies or detractors. But note, to the patriot, Actions are held to be good in some hands and bad in others, depending solely on who commits the outrage. Torture, assassinations, bombing civilians, forced confessions, invasion and occupation, constant state surveillance, involuntary servitude, hostage-taking, imprisonment without trial, all of this and more is judged, according to the patriotic nationalist, by a single criteria, who did it? Patriotism, then, dulls the imagination, obscures reality, anesthetizes some people, and causes moral blindness or ethical amnesia in others. Our country was founded on slavery and genocide. It's part of our American character and country. Many self-defined patriots want to deny or forget 
that agonizing, painful, and horrifying part of our history, a history that lives on, and the cost of not remembering can be excruciating, willful ignorance, sham innocence, and collective silence in the name of patriotism assure that the racial wounds will never heal, the horror will always abide. The tragedy, shame, and pain of this country, including kidnapping, slavery, rape, murder, genocide, torture, terrorism, predation, exploitation and oppression, degradation and humiliation are foundational, linked, and evolving. Slavery begets lynching, which begets Jim Crow and segregation and voter suppression and redlining, and on and on to mass incarceration and beyond. James Baldwin pointed out that, quote, the American Negro has the greatest advantage of having never believed the collection of myths to which white Americans cling, that their ancestors were all freedom-loving heroes, that they were born in the greatest country the world has ever seen, or that Americans are invincible in battle and wise in peace, that Americans have always dealt honorably with Mexicans and Indians. Our tendency, he goes on, has really been to dismiss white people as the slightly mad victims of their own brainwashing. White White identity politics has always simply called itself American. If we have to use force, former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright famously said, it is because we are America, we are the indispensable nation. A benign interpretation of that extravagant claim might visualize the country as a shining city on the hill, the very paragon of democracy and freedom. A more realistic assessment might see the U.S. astride the world like Colossus, holding itself exempt from international agreements like the International Criminal Court and the Paris Climate Accords, above the laws that govern all others, particularly concerning the use of lethal force. Because we are the unambiguous model of virtue and righteousness, our actions are always good. Because our actions are always good, we're not subject to the ordinary rules that apply to all others. We're the indispensable nation, after all. So while Russian meddling in the U.S. elections is widely seen by U.S. patriots as outrageous, and it is, U.S. meddling in elections from Honduras and Venezuela to Ukraine and Cyprus is if they even bothered to notice, not so bad. The hypocrisy and naked narcissism is breathtaking. Patriotism promises a steady anchor and a convenient roadmap, but in reality, it's entirely unstable. Anyone wrapped in the flag or donning the crown of patriotism would be well advised to pause before being lulled into a sense of settled comfort or any fuzzy familiar feeling of self-righteousness. The wheel turns and people stumble into the vortex of a dynamic living history, the crown suddenly tarnished or askew, the banner singed and torn, and they are then required to make their wobbly way without any guarantee whatsoever. All of this might move us to note that every human being is indigenous to planet Earth and that there is, therefore, no such thing as a foreigner. We might work then to replace national patriotism with human solidarity, seen from terrace, in the spirit of Chicago's poet laureate, Gwendolyn Brooks. We are each other's harvest. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude. 
and bond. It's time for our guest speaker segment, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, where we talk to folks who can help us think more deeply about this political moment, about where we are on the clock of the universe, and about what is to be done. It's where we try to unleash our most radical imaginations, and we do it with the help of activists and authors and artists. So it's my distinct privilege and pleasure today to welcome Prexy Nesbitt to Under the Tree. Prexy is not only a friend and a comrade, but for me, a model of what it means to be a freedom fighter for the long haul, making the road while walking. Thanks for joining us, Prexy. Thank you, Bill. You know, I was telling you earlier that the, the podcast is called Under the Tree because the idea is to say that a seminar doesn't have to meet in a classroom. In some ways, classrooms are restrictive and the Freedom Schools of Mississippi met under the tree, and you were telling me that this takes, in your mind, it takes you typically and, and traditionally, as, as your long-time activism has proven, it takes you to Africa. Say a word about that. Thank you very much, Bill. I think that, that the concept of being under the tree partners exactly with the concept in Africa, pretty much found all over Africa, where the elders would meet underneath the baobab tree. Those are those great giant trees that you find populating savanna, desert-like parts of Africa, made famous in the uh, uh, various books like The Little Prince and others. And that's the place where the great decisions would be made. Really? Thoughts would be aired wow. under the baobab tree. Well, you've added a whole dimension to the title of our podcast. Um, that's very exciting, and, and I appreciate it. You know, for many years, before it was well-known, even among the left in the United States, you were um, an African solidarity liberation struggle person. You were in the African struggle. And I'm thinking of Guinea-Bissau, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, South Africa itself. And I'd like to tell you, you to tell us a bit about how you got involved in that struggle at such a young age, and in many ways, you were the main person in the United States bringing consciousness about the African liberation struggle, I think for decades um, before anyone else. So tell us a bit about how you got engaged in that, involved in that. I think, Bill, that I was just very fortunate. I, I have never characterized myself as being the main person that was involved. I was certainly very fortunate to become involved in a very early very early period. I think that one of the main reasons for that is that the, the, the wonderful leader and founder of Frilimo, the Mozambique Liberation Front, Eduardo Monlani, married his wife in my family's congregational church on the west side of Chicago in about 1948 or 50, 52, somewhere in there. Wow. That church, incidentally, Bill, would be the same church where I would meet your wife, Bernadine Doran, as we both worked out of that church assisting Dr. King, who was based out of that church in the 65, 66 period. Uh, it was in that period as well that I was at Antioch College. Hmm. Uh, 
I, many people, as you know, went from Antioch College down to do work in the Civil Rights Movement in the summer of 64. Right. My mother was freaked over that idea. She was said, they'll take one look at you in those Becker Woods down there, they're going to hang you to the next tree. So I begged her, <clears throat> begged her, but she would not consent. She said, I'll do anything else you want me to do and help you with anything. I won't let you go. So I said, well, then let me go to Africa. And so I tried to go with the Antioch Study Abroad Program to Rhodesia, then mm. Rhodesia. Mm. This is in 1965. Everything was set up. We were ready to leave. A telegram comes in to the house in Chicago. My mother and father read it to me. I'm down in Yellow Springs, Ohio. It says, forget it. We're not going to allow you to enter Rhodesia. Uh, so I was very disappointed, but Antioch College's staff found a new university that was just opening up, the University College of Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Mm. And with about three days worth of notice, we shifted gear and I went to Tanzania to study there. Well, in 65, 66, Tanzania was then beginning to receive all these young freedom fighters from all over Southern Africa. My roommate was a South African refugee, Lifford Singe. And all of these were the people who introduced me to people. And then, of course, Eduardo Monlani was there. He had founded, by that point, the Mozambique Liberation Front for Limo. Mm. And so I went and volunteered there. I volunteered at the ANC office. I met with SWAPO students, Southwest African People's Organization. So I was very early educated by the brothers and sisters in from Southern African struggles in Tanzania, which was the host country for these extraordinary struggles going on. And I was lucky. I was I was exposed to this. And immediately I understood I had a responsibility to expose my other friends and people from back in Chicago to this struggle that was going on and find out ways we could reach out and be of help. And so you you have led over a hundred trips to Africa of American folks. Is that correct? About a hundred trips. Right. Not just American <clears throat> folks. I've taken people also from Sweden. Mm. I've taken people from Switzerland. I've taken people also from Canada. But the bulk of them have been American people. And then, of course, at some point about 20 years ago, I set up an organization called Making the Road. And as you know, your wife and uh, one of your sons, I can't remember. Malik. It was Malik. They, I took them to South Africa with a group from Chicago, uh, uh, one of the foundations in Chicago. Well, I didn't know if you were going to remember that because I was going to bring it up. Malik, now 25 years later, still talks about that trip. He was a teenager. You took him and Bernadine and a whole group of people, many of them not radicals, many of them barely liberals, and yet you were trying to show them, explain to them the importance of African liberation to their own liberation. And I think Malik still resonates with that, and what he remembers most clearly, I think, is, is uh, meeting Walter Sisulu. 
You know, that is really interesting, Bill. The meeting with Walter Sisulu is one that I, too, will never forget. Because we got in the room, a big room of the ANC's headquarters, and we were received by the wonderful woman, Cheryl Carolas. Mm-hmm. Amazing, amazing woman. And she was sitting there talking to us, and we had a great time, and she suddenly says, I'm waiting for Walter Sisulu to get here. He wants to meet the whole group. And tell folks who and Walter who Walter was. Walter Sisulu is probably, in my view, one of the most critical leaders of the African National Congress. He was the man who, if there was any one person who schooled Mandela, it was Walter Sisulu. Mm. And he is... If the incident that happened that day is vintage Walter Sisulu, as Cheryl Carolus asked, "Where I'm waiting for Walter Sisulu to get here," a man sitting in the back quietly said, "I'm here, Cheryl. I'm here." <laughs> that was the way Walter Sisulu was. Mm-hmm. He was ever a presence and was the one that Mandela most relied upon in mm. many ways. Tambo was his law partner. But his partner in life was Walter Sassoon. Mm. And Walter had a particular um, affection for children. He always talked about children. And Walter had an incredible love of children. Right. And so he, he went over and put his uh, hands on Malik's shoulders, and Malik still has a shiver when he thinks about it, you know? Well, Walter was partnered also. It's very important. These that always these wonderful giants had wonderful giant women with them. And so Albertina Sisulu, Walter's partner for life, became the head of the United Democratic Front of mm-hmm. South Africa. She was one of the most powerful figures in the whole South African struggle and had this extraordinary presence, just extraordinary. Your link to South Africa is fairly well-known and certainly very deep, but you also had a link to many, many others, Samora Michel, uh, Mozambique, Free Limo. Um, you had a link to Guinea-Bissau and Amilcar Cabral. Um, I, I think you know that, that one of my nephews is named Amilcar uh, after Cabral. Um, but, but in your mind at the time and, and looking back, what was the importance of African liberation to our liberation and to freedom fighters here? I think unknown to many, many Americans, including many African Americans and other people of color, is the fact that we there was an inseparable link and tie. There was a reciprocity, there was a mutuality of struggle that goes just way, way back. I remember having a discussion with the late James, with James Lawson, who got so much prominence when, when John Lewis just died. Yes. James Lawson was saying to me in a discussion, we had a bit of disagreement. He was saying that the liberation movements in Southern Africa had not ever had this period of doing nonviolent struggle. And I said, but that's just not right, James, that all these liberation movements went through very protracted periods of nonviolent struggle, petitioning, of writing letters, of approaching the United Nations. And then one of the classic examples of this is, is Albert Latuli. 
and Latuli was in correspondence with people like Paul Robeson. He was in correspondence with Martin Luther King. He, and like many of them over there, followed precisely and totally the struggles taking place in the United States. Uh, and many United States people uh, were very conversant, even though it didn't get much cover, they were very conversant U.S. people with what was happening in Southern Africa. So that, for example, one of the examples that has been written by about very important example was that the men who worked on ships, African-American men who worked on ships that went to all these places in Southern Africa, they went to places like Namibia, and there on the docks, and as they were unloading and meeting these Southern African workers there, they exchanged views and they exchanged music and culture. Mm. And so there was a lot of interchange that went on between these movements. And the correspondence that was held between prominent leaders like Latuli and Martin Luther King is just extraordinary, extraordinary uh, clarity about how linked these struggles were one to the other. And I was very fortunate to be over there, Bill, and meeting uh, people who were in the midst of this, you know, people who were just uh, people who fled South Africa and came to be based in Tanzania to do the struggle from Tanzania. Tanzania's contribution was just extraordinary to all these struggles. Well, you keep saying you were very fortunate, and I think that's true. I also think that you there's a through line here, and that is your choice, your decision to be a bridge, to be an internationalist. And I think that we saw it in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. You remember when when uh, uh, Ogingo Dinga came to visit the United States and SNCC went down to meet him because they weren't allowed in the Peachtree Manor Hotel where Ogingo Dinga was staying, right? And they were making those links. And it's folks like you who made those links concrete. And here we are today with Black Lives Matter rising in ways that just were unimaginable just a year ago. Um, and they, too, have a deep, deep internationalism baked into their DNA. And I credit folks like you with making that a possibility for kids today. I think, that, I think that's very true. But I think also, in my case, Bill, I came from a family that totally encouraged this. Right. My uncle's book about the Nesbitt family will be coming out about a year from now through C Press. That book will be will, will be really explain a lot of of a period where many African American families and people saw in Africa a a relationship that being in solidarity with Africa was being in solidarity with themselves. Mm. My uncle, uh, who wrote that book, often would say to me, as my father said, we wish that you could have seen our uncles, who were all Garveyites. They were all members mm. of Marcus Garvey's movement. And they would, they would have been so proud of your trips to Africa and of all the work you've done with Africa. When I finally got to take my father to 
Zambia and Tanzania. And it was the only time he got to go. It was really interesting, Bill. Throughout the trip, he, he'd see people on the street. He'd say, Prixie, that's Sam Gompers over there. <laughs> I know that's Sam Gompers. He said, that looks just like <laughs> And he was just, and, and he, he talked to everybody. He went I love it. Everyone. They all knew within a few, within a couple days, right. Prexy's father was here with us in Lusaka. Prexy's father is in Dar es Salaam. That's so wonderful. You know, I th you've known so many revolutionaries. I'm thinking of uh, Grasso Michel, Samora Michel. And y you, did you consider yourself, did you say to yourself at some point, I am a revolutionary? I've never used that phrase. You never have? I've never used that phrase. I would not use it. Tell me why. the people that have trained and schooled me, I am. I try to live according to the kinds of values and lifestyle that they introduce me to. That if if I can simply say by the end of my life that I walked a little bit in their footsteps, if I can if I can pretend that I I was finally able to to be somewhat in the kind of level of consistency that Samora Michelle showed that uh, people like Theo Ben-Gurirab, that's a name very few people know, but mm -hmm. here was this extraordinary representative of SWAPO, the Namibian Liberation Movement. He, he was a modest man, but a giant of a man. They gave everything their lives went into the struggle. And that's what I think is the other thing that I really would urge that the young brothers and sisters that I'm trying to emulate them now right you know, all think about is this this is this is a lifetime it's not a you don't get the change that we want overnight it's long distance running it's it's no sprint exactly and and that's why I mean for me I understand not wanting to use the word it sounds a bit lofty but for me, you've never been a person who wanted to tinker with the system and get this little change or that little change. You've always wanted a serious upheaval where the marginalized and the excluded actually become center stage. And, and in a sense, that means you want more than a rebellion, you want fundamental change, a revolution. I understand the, t the, t the label might be just too lofty and in your modesty, I agree with you. You want to walk the walk, you want to live within that that culture, um, but you have never been a person who says a little change here, a little change there is, is satisfactory. No, I think this is a very, very accurate assessment. I think though that the other part I would add is that I've always believed that it's dependent on our getting the mass involvement in this. Right. One of my deepest friends is the poet from Mozambique, George Rebello. And George wrote a poem where he said, forge simple words, words which will enter our people's souls like red-hot embers. Mm. And those simple words that we forged, the Panther Party was great at doing that. That's right. And, and one can measure the difference in the way people move around in the West Side now as compared to that period when those young Panther brothers and sisters were around. And people walked with much more pride, confidence, not beaten down. 
this this is part of why the city of Chicago refuses to memorialize the Black Panther Party mm. because it would be another infusion of strength and confidence. Yeah. Right, but but you look at the young people today. You said earlier, I'm learning from them. I I have the exact same stance. I have. Very little to tell them. I have a hell of a lot to learn from them, and I've never seen an uprising like this. What is your take on the current upheaval, the Black Lives Matter moment, and everything that's flowing out of that? What's your take? My on take it? is that I think it's first of all, it's global. It's an upheaval that's global. I think even more than was the case in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, that the that the, the impact of Black Lives Matter has been one that's much more momentous. And I think no small part of that is due to the fact that it's led by women who take no, they, 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 they're, they're going all the way. They mm-hmm. aren't playing. Mm-hmm. They, are, they have a real vision. They're developing a program. They have uh, a perspective that sees the relationship between different struggles I have nothing but the deepest admiration and feel that this is the feeling of the world. I mean, it's not accidental that Black Lives Matter is a global phenomenon now. It's not just simply in the United States. It's just sad that not more, well, I think, let me back up on that. I think many of the young white people really recognize this is a source of renewal for the whole United States, for everybody. Right. The older white generation, the people who are out there where I am in Orange County, they're just deprived of this. Mm. As a result, they're, they're, their lives are empty. Mm. They, they reflect the emptiness of a decaying system that Black Lives Matter says and asserts, and the young whites joining them assert, we got to change it, mm. totally change it. There is no normal to return to because normal was no good. That's a very, very important point. Return to normal is a return to white supremacy. It's a return to failing schools. It's a return to apartheid in the educational system. It's a return to health disparities that are murdering people. So I'm with you. Uh, No return to normal. Let's lurch forward to something different. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that uh, I'm now changing the making the road kind of a mantra because we're whereas it has been making the road and taking people to meet apartheid South Africa I'm now involved in trying to do a making the road taking people to meet apartheid USA nice take people from these suburbs people from these parts where white communities are scared to death of black people and brown people and Asian people and take them to meet their own country, to meet their own history. This is the new approach that I'm trying to take with making the road. Now in the, in the, in the near future is when we can do it, I want to bring much more Africans and Asians and Brazilians here to meet the United States too. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a marvelous goal. I mean, I think that when people say, gee, the police don't feel like an occupying force to me, and you realize they're living in Lake Forest, I mean, of course they're not an occupying force, but come with me and take a look and you'll see what it means. And in some ways, the public assassination of of George Floyd um, by armed agents of the state 
was an in-your-face moment where people could see for the first time, some of them, that what an occupying force looks like. And then again, you make that international connection. Invasion, occupation, control, same here, same there. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, you mentioned Jim Lawson earlier, and at, at the uh, memorial for John Lewis, he used a phrase that I picked up on. We talk a lot about racial capitalism. He called it plantation capitalism. And I thought that was a phenomenal phrase, you know, because he's pointing to the systemic nature of a system based on, on exploitation, predation, um, oppression. Um, and, and it really goes back to the plantation, doesn't it? Absolutely, and goes back and has within it also the, the outline of what was a global system. Mm. It's very important people to understand that this was a global system and remains a global system. Right. Africa is most hard hit right now by COVID because of the fact that so much of Africa uh, has been enslaved by the current situation of global capitalism that uh, much of the African economies can't, they have no capacity to, to, uh, to, to recover from this uh, global epidemic right now because they have economies that have been completely subordinated to corporate capitalism subordinated to the 2%. There's the, I can't count enough how many African countries are just bankrupt because of the way in which the global system has done that. And that then fits in with the way in which we have so many communities that are completely, completely deprived of any resources to be able to cope with the situation that we have happening in this country right now. You know, my education about Africa and the link you're describing begins with you and goes to Amilcar Cabral, who uh, I think was an absolute genius at explaining the link between empire and the underdevelopment of Africa. And then Walter Rodney, how Europe underdeveloped Africa. What, what other texts should people read if they want to really understand the history of this um, of this uh, nightmare? I think another major text is the books that have been written by a man named Alan Isaacman. Mm. And he's talked about cotton. And he's talked about cotton plantations and cotton cultivation in Mozambique. And if you read through that, you say, oh, wait a minute. This is just like reading about Mississippi. Mm. And that's the source of the underdevelopment of Mozambique. The mm. fact that Mozambique is one of the poorest countries in the world. So the reading Cabral, and, and I agree entirely, I don't think there is a single strategist that has ever been as profound as Amilcar Cabral. The same thing I'd say about Walter Rodney's book. Mm -hmm. And these men were assassinated precisely because right. they were making such a wonderful contribution. I also feel that Manning Barable was of that kind of kind of stature as well. Absolutely. And all of his works have that same kind of contribution just that's extra so that I would really recommend that people read Manning Marable and his historical works. I think that the work done by Barbara Ransby uh, 
it offers an insights on these things that are just all these questions that are just wonderful. Barbara, of course, is a close friend and comrade of, of both of ours. I just read this morning that she was named a MacArthur Chair uh, at University of Illinois Chicago. So she just was got a named chair at UIC in African American Studies. So that's wonderful. Yeah, congratulations, it's Barbara. Good to, it's good to know that the place that I used to work at least can make some good decisions. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. after making many bad ones. Um, it's so good to see you. Partly to see you healthy, well, striving, moving. Uh, intellectually adept as always. Tell me, before we end, um, how you're finding joy in this moment? What are you finding? Uh, how, how do you keep yourself balanced during this COVID crisis and during the great uprising that we're both witnessing and participating in? Out there in Orange, that's a place where people find their joy out there in their cars. Uh-huh. They love their Porsches and their Benzes <laughs> uh, and, uh-huh. and keeping them shiny. And uh-huh. Heaven forbid that you have any kind of little bumper touch their cars. I'm trying to, I, I work a lot with, I live in a predominantly Latino community that in the very beginning, they were just scared to death of me as a black man. Really? Scared to death. Hmm. But over time, I now have them not only speaking to me all the time, but also being with me uh, with, I'm getting, be even beginning some of them to maybe go to some demonstrations with Awesome, awesome. That's all work, and the, the work stems from this, Bill, stems from talking to people all the time. It was a trait that my, my father and his four brothers all had, all Nesbitt men. We know they'd always greet people in the morning. Hello, how you doing? What you doing? How was your night? And sometimes it embarrassed us as kids, but it's now we understand what it's about. The final thing is, Bill, I read poetry. I read poetry like crazy. My uncle, Robert Hayden, was one of the world's best poets. Uh, my uncle, I incidentally, this is like a yard uncle. We have, in my family, we had hundreds of people that were uncles. Absolutely. All right, it's just like, like that. That's the way we operate. Right. So those are the things that I think we got to turn to each other to get strength in 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 crisis like this kind of crisis. And that's the African way also of doing things. You know, you're a natural born organizer. You talk to people. You learn from people, and you connect people. And I admire that so so deeply. And I can't thank you enough for joining us for a half hour here under the tree. And let's keep talking arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder over the next barricade. Let's do it, Bill. Okay, that brother. The tree that you're under the tree, the baobab tree I'm under, the oak and the baobab come together. Beautiful, brother. I, I will talk to you soon. You stay healthy and stay well. Thank you very much. All Take right, care. man. Take care. You know, that interview with Prexy really uh, was moving. And he's been an internationalist freedom fighter really for decades. Um, so I was really happy to, to talk with him. But it made me think of all kinds of books that I've been reading recently. Some I've written, read years ago. But, but what I thought of was three books that I read this summer uh, that I really thought were 
part of that internationalist canon. So I'm returning to the... The book of, of books, yeah? The book of books. Here we are in the book of books. You know, um, one of them is the, one of the funniest books I've ever read. It's a, it's a graphic. It's called The Great Hanoi Rat Hunt, Empire, Disease, and Modernity in French Colonial Vietnam. But check that uh, title, The Great Hanoi Rat Hunt. Hanoi. And what it's about, this is a classic, because what it's about, turn of the last century, the French wanted to you know, showcase Vietnam to show they were as good imperialists as the British. And so they wanted to have a World's Fair in Vietnam. There was one problem. There was plague everywhere, and there were rats overrunning Hanoi. Ah. So they decided they were going to get rid of the rats. And the way they decided to do it was to offer a payment to everyone who could bring them a dead rat. Cash payment for Cash rats. Cash payment for rats. So what happened is they got a whole pile of rats piling up. And too many rats. So they said, you know what? Wait, wait, wait. Where are they piling up the rats? They're, they had collection centers. Okay. So you bring in a rat, you get a couple of francs, whatever it was, the payment. And so they said, you know what? Let's not bring rats. Just bring a rat tail. So people bring in <laughs> rat tails, getting a couple of francs. You know, the, the, the folks, the people in the neighborhoods, yeah. the, the ghetto dwellers. Right, and right. So they're paying them for rat tails. And then one of the colonial administrators is out in the neighborhoods. He notices two things. One is a bunch of rats running around without tails, and ah. the other is the other is rat farms. So they're not stupid. Of course, they're breeding rats, of killing them or cutting off their tails and making this money. They never did get rid of the rats. The rats stay. It's too funny. This colonialism it's the great outsmarted. Hanoi rat hunt. And That's once amazing. again, the arrogance of the colonialist, you know, defeated them. They couldn't see beyond. They never thought that. But the, also the ingenuity of, of the of the uh, the colonialists. Absolutely. And one of the things that the colonialists never think of is maybe I should ask the people what they think. How should we get rid of the rats? It never occurs to them mm -hmm. that the people themselves have the answer. So right. they, they know best. Cause they're, well, what, what might they have done, you think? Did they even touch on that? I have moment? no idea. No. But I do know that people with the problems can always absolutely. solve those problems. But you, you know, the fact that the arrogant overlooked them is part of it. The other book I want to just mention is um, called Imperial Reckoning, the untold story of Britain's gulag in Kenya. Because when I was growing up, this is way before your time, but the Mau Mau of Kenya were considered the most brutal, the most savage, the most uh, uncivilized of all mm. the, the kind of anti-colonial forces. And this book is a book that shows you something that if you stop and think about it, you would know, which is the savages were the British themselves. Mm -hmm. The people, the Kikuyu people of Kenya were not savages. They did have a movement called the Mau Mau movement to drive the British out, and eventually they did. Uh, and Jomo Kenyatta became uh, the, pre the first you know, African president of Kenya. But the idea that somehow they perpetrated this myth all around the world that the British were bringing civilization, they were bringing literacy, they were bringing high values, and it was the people that were barbarians and uncivilized savages. Mm -hmm. And this is a deep, deep study by a Harvard scholar that shows you the exact opposite is true. The people who were raping, burning, murdering, torturing, putting folks in unthinkable, uh, torturous situations were the British themselves. So colonialism, Obviously, it has dark roots in all all parts of the globe. What kind of differences did you see between the the French, you know, the story of the the Hanoi rat hunt and and the the 
the book you just mentioned. Well, what I liked about the, Hanoi, the great Hanoi rat hunt was simply the arrogance that it exposed. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that the French in Indochina, the British in Africa, the um, the Belgium Belgians in the Congo, mm -hmm. these were brutal, brutal savages. And there's a book that I also read a long time ago called Exterminate All the Brutes by a British, uh, by a uh, European scholar named Sven Lindqvist. And what he uses that phrase, exterminate all the brutes, which is the most horrifying line in Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness. That book ends mm. with the phrase, exterminate all the brutes. And it's that knowledge, that kind of genocidal mindset baked into the European DNA that leads not only to the most horrific crimes against humanity, but it leads directly to the Holocaust as well. Eventually you turn on yourself. What's his name again? His name is Sven Lindqvist. No, no, no. The guy who wrote the book that ended with Exterminate Oh, that's Joseph Roots. Conrad. Can you just say a little bit about Joseph yeah, Conrad? Yeah, Joseph Conrad wrote an extraordinary novel that's been interpreted in a thousand different ways. Uh, but the novel is called The Heart of Darkness. Mm -hmm. And it's about, uh, it's about madness. It's about European greed. It's about European view of the world. But it's about a journey that a man undertakes into the deepest, darkest uh, parts of Africa in search of somebody who's gone missing. Okay. And, um, and it's a really horrifying story. Um, but it ends with the phrase, exterminate all the brutes. And, and is this the, the character that is said to be based on Indiana Jones? Or this like con conquistador, you know, this conquesting, uh, you know, European going into the, the jungles of Africa to, you know, for yeah, adventure. no, I think I think that I think that Indiana Jones undoubtedly um, looked at that and, and borrowed from that, but um, the the movie that's directly taken from it is Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. Uh -huh. That is a direct derivative of um, Joseph Conrad's classic novel. Wow. It, it's a it's a horrifying vision, and the heart of darkness is not inside the continent of Africa. The heart right. of darkness is inside the European heart. Before we end this, the episode for today, let me give you one more homework assignment, something to think about, meditate on, and perhaps write a little bit about. It seems that we're perpetually in an election season, but this moment is particularly intense in regard to the upcoming national elections, partly because I think fascism is on the ballot. But I'd like you to make a short list of the reasons you plan to vote or the reasons you plan not to vote and send your list to us at underthetreepod at gmail.com. And then I'd like you to imagine what would happen if every person in a country with a U.S. military presence had the right to vote in the U.S. national election. Think about that. What if every person in a country with a U.S. military presence had the right to vote in a U.S. presidential election? Why not? Don't forget to rate and review Under the Tree on Apple Podcasts. Leave a rating, a review. It helps us get noticed on all of the algorithms and the podcast apps. Thank you for listening and tell a friend about the show. Big thanks to my comrades from Ergo, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, supervising producers and intrepid mentors in this enterprise. And to my workmate in arms, Malik Kalim, engineer, recordist, mixer, musicologist, caregiver, and philosopher in residence. Thanks for being here. With joy in my heart and justice on my mind, 
Until next time.